If you would, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere around you in the pew. Exodus chapter 20 is on page 61 of that Bible. If you've walked around uh, the building much and looked on various doors, you've seen small black signs that say, what's your plan? What's your plan? Referring to uh, our desire each August to obey intentionally 1 Peter 4.9. Not that that's the only month we obey 1 Peter 4.9, but as a yearly reminder of the need to obey it, which says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so each August, our desire is to open our hearts, our lives, our homes in order to invite others in, those we don't know as well, in order to know them well. Hospitality is the heart that helps move strangers and changes them into friends and changes friends into family. And so that's what we want to do, and every August we do this. So the question is, what's your plan? What is the plan? It won't just happen. It doesn't just happen accidentally. It doesn't typically happen just by happenstance. Somebody just shows up and you invite them in, that's hospitable, but typically we actually make a plan. So what is your plan? The command is not look around and see if anybody shows you hospitality without grumbling. Yeah? It's actually show hospitality. And so the emphasis of all our minds and hearts this month is, should be in part to do just that, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, we are in the midst of a series of sermons looking at the big story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from garden to glory. We are not hitting every story or even every important story along the way, but we are hitting important plot points that carry along the story of the Bible, reminding ourselves that this book made up of 66 books written over 1,500 years by a few dozen authors actually all holds together. It is all one book. It is all one story. We have come through creation and the fall, the call of Abraham, and God's rescue of His people from Egypt. And now Israel is in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there they receive God's law. And to think on that this morning, I, I want us to focus on Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. That will be the center of, of what we think about. And so we'll read it together, Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit of God says to us. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God remains forever. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that You would show us Christ. Your Word is food for our famished souls, and it is freedom. 
Where else could we possibly go? You alone have the words of life. Speak them to us in the power of your Spirit through a jar of clay. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you who are parents will know the name Ted Tripp. Uh, He wrote a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And just a few weeks ago, our school ministry staff and teachers had a professional work day that was led virtually by Ted Tripp and by his wife, uh, Margie. It was, uh, all reports to me, it was a great and an encouraging day. Um, At one point, I was in the foyer, and I overheard uh, Margie, Ted's wife, talking about rewards in the classroom, imagining a situation where a teacher bakes chocolate chip cookies and brings them to school uh, and, and tells the students, uh, I baked all these delicious cookies, and if you do well and we get all of our work done today, this morning, then we can have the cookies at recess. Now, I have a confession to make. I left the foyer after hearing that, so I don't know what her point was. So you can ask any of these teachers, and that will be their test. Doesn't that sound good, Chris? That's their test. What was the point of that? If the point was to stir up my desire for chocolate chip cookies, Well, then she succeeded. Uh, But as I prepared for this morning, that image, that teacher with those cookies actually came to mind because it seems to me that that's how many people think about the relationship between God's law and salvation. If you do the work, if you obey the law, you get the cookies you get salvation. But is that right? I can't even tell you how many times I've heard, well, you just, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you believe in God and you try to obey the Ten Commandments. You believe in God and try to obey the Ten Commandments. Is that right? If we obey God's commands the best we can, is that the key to God accepting us? Is that, is that what the Bible teaches? I wonder if that's what you're banking on this morning. Well, these are important questions, important in part because the law plays a significant role in the storyline of the Bible. It comes up over and over again. But it's also important because if we get the answers to those questions wrong, then we get salvation wrong. And if we get salvation wrong, that has eternal consequences. And so we're going to think about this. We're going to look at these verses, and we're going to think about them in the context of the whole Bible, really, so that we can answer those kinds of questions rightly. And as we look at these three verses, I, want to, I would just want to point out three things. The first thing I want to point out is the giver of the law. The giver of the law. The law doesn't come from the mind of Moses. He's not saying, I mean, these people are a bit uh, uh, complainy. They're a bit difficult. But Moses isn't thinking, well, you know, we probably need some guidelines to keep these folks in line or else things are going to get out of control. It doesn't come from Israel's shared value system. The law comes from God. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. 
Thinking about who God is actually puts the law in right perspective. So who is He? Well, He's the Creator God. Now, we've seen this already in Genesis. That would be firmly in our minds as we have read along the story of the Bible. when, When God gives the law, He's not like a playground bully, right, who shows up and there's a kickball game already in progress, and He says, hey, we're going to play by my rules now. That's not God giving the law. God gives the law as creator. You remember Genesis 1, right? God says, let there be light. And what happens? There's light. But he actually goes beyond just putting things in place, and then he doesn't step back. He actually says, let let the fruits produce, let the plants produce fruit, and the animals reproduce according to their kinds. There's a series of videos where this man going in and out from the camera, so that's a little disturbing. But he's talking about, you find a seed, he's teaching people how to take seeds and propagate them so that you can grow more fruit. You know, you can take a lemon seed and get a lemon tree out of it, these kinds of things. But why does that work every time? Why is it that when you propagate a lemon seed, you don't get an apple tree? Quite frankly, because God established the laws of nature to say that plants will produce according to their kind. And here in Exodus 20, God speaks to His creation again, more specifically, more elaborately than He did in the past. He speaks to human beings and tells them how to live, how to flourish as His creatures. He is the Creator, and He has the authority to do it. We already know this instinctively, don't we? That the Creator of something has the rights to it, has the rights to determine what it is that will happen to it here or there. I happened to look back just this week, and and back in uh, 1966, there's an owner's meeting, an NFL owner's meeting, and they're trying to come up with the name of the championship between the American Football League and the National Football League. And they're tossing things around, and finally, uh, someone says Super Bowl uh, because their child had a Super Bowl. You know, one of these bouncy balls? He just thought, what about that? Well, no, that's dumb. And then they keep going, but then they circle back around to Super Bowl. And three years later, you know what they did? They trademarked it because they came up with it. They get to determine how it's used. I don't even know if I was allowed to say it just now. So don't tell the NFL what I said, please. But that's how things work. The Creator has the rights. The Creator gets control. The Creator gets to decide what creation does. And that's when God, so when God tells us, thou shalt and thou shalt not, He doesn't do it as someone who's just showing up late on the scene. He's doing it as the one who actually put us together. He's doing it as the one who created us. He's doing it as the one who knows best what it means for human beings to flourish. And so he says, this is how you must live. He's not only the creator God, though. He's the awesome God. And we see this. We're going to glance back into chapter 19. Look at verse 10 in chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for for the people all around, saying, 
Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then verse 16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. Now, in, in our day of special effects and computer-generated images, we are not easily impressed by sights and sounds. You know this if you've watched a movie that you watched as a child with your children. And that when I first saw, say, The NeverEnding Story, I was like, that is just the most amazing thing ever. And I go back and I watched it with my, with my children several years ago, and they were like, this is the lamest thing ever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not the storyline, you see, just the effects. We, we, it really has to be something for it to, uh, to cause us to be in awe. But I've been on a plane over the mountains of Afghanistan in turbulence so bad that people on the plane are crying, and many are scared. I've been awakened in the night by earthquakes. I've hovered over my two young sons as a hurricane pounded our hotel. And you've had similar experiences. Those times, those moments when we're reminded how small we are, we're reminded how powerless we are, and we tremble. And here the people see the manifestation of God's power. They see God is awesome. They see His fire and feel its heat on their skin. The thunder booms and the trumpets blast and they feel it in their chest and they tremble. Chapter 20, verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. This God who is speaking the law is no ordinary God. First of all, no other gods speak. But this God is no domesticated God. You can't even approach Him without permission. You don't question Him. You don't try to redefine Him. You tremble before Him. He is the God of the mountain, the awesome God. And when He speaks, when He says, Thou shalt, or thou shalt not, the right response is to humble yourself and to listen and to obey this awesome God. He's the creator. He is awesome. And thirdly, He's personal. Notice what God calls Himself in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Now, God had promised this to Abraham about his descendants in Genesis 17. He tells Abraham, I will be their God. And then when God calls Moses and sends Moses to Pharaoh before he sends him in Exodus 6, 
he says, this is what you need to tell the people of Israel. I will be your God. The promises have been, I will be, I will be. And now God says, I am the Lord, your God. Yes, He's the King of the universe. Yes, He rules every molecule at every moment. Yes, He manages the affairs of human history and causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall. Yes, He is above us and beyond us, and He dwells in unapproachable light. But this God is also personal. He came near, and He says, I am the Lord. You'll notice that's in all capitals. This is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's a reminder that He is with them. He is for them. He has bound Himself to them. And then as if to underscore the fact that He is with them and for them and bound themselves to Him, He says, I am your God. I am the Lord, your God. He is theirs. He, he belongs to them in a way He doesn't belong to any other people, any other nation. Not at this time, not at this moment. God doesn't give the law as this distant, cold, power-hungry emperor. He gives it as a warm, loving Father. God is committed to those that He commands. He's given Himself to them. This is quite a God, isn't it? Who has created all things, who demonstrates power and majesty and is awesome, and yet is personal and near and gives himself, gives himself as creator to his creation as theirs so that they can say, he is my God and I am his. This is the giver of the law. We have to have that in mind or else we lose some of the force of the law because his authority is clear. Now, you can just hear law and you probably think authority, but also His love is clear. He is their God. This relationship is the context in which He gives the law. The second thing to see is that grace comes before law. Grace comes before law. Notice the next phrase in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, that's what we saw last week, God delivering His people from slavery in Egypt. Now, in one sense, the language that we see in Exodus 20 is very common covenant language. In that day when a superior king was going to make a covenant with an inferior king and his people, uh, there were certain elements that were always present. The king would first announce who he is. You know, I am this guy. And then he would say what he's done to bless that other nation, whether it's been military protection or whether the granting of land or whatever it is. And then third, he tells them, he tells this inferior king what he must do to stay in his good graces. You know, things like pay tribute, don't rebel, you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, we see those same kinds of elements here. God announces who he is. I am the Lord your God. And then he announces how He has blessed them who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then He gets 
to the law. Then he gets to their obligations in the covenant. But it is grace first and then law. Grace, God shows grace to the people in rescuing them from slavery. He sees their affliction in Egypt. He hears their cries for mercy. He remembers His covenant and He acts of His own volition. He goes. He saves. He provides a sacrificial lamb so they escape death. He brings them out of Egypt. He delivers them and He defeats their enemies. And it's all because of His grace. And it is on the basis of that grace that God calls Israel to obey. You shall not have any other God. There is no other God that has shown you the grace that I have shown you. There is no other God that has saved you in the way that I have saved you. There is no other God who has provided for you in the way that I have provided for you. You shall have no other gods. None. If you were to go backwards in Exodus and you were to go back to God calling Moses and God sending Moses to Pharaoh, do you know what would be conspicuously absent? Conditions. God does not go to Moses in the burning bush and say, okay, Moses, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you ten commandments. And then you're going to go to the people and you're going to tell them, if they will keep these commandments, then I'll save them. I will be up here in heaven with my clipboard and I will be keeping up with how it goes. Oh, it's been a bad day in the Smith household. Uh, Not referring to your household, Smith. But, you know... It's been a, you know, it's been moderately okay over there. It's been terrible there. He's in, in, but I'll be there with my clipboard. And if I see enough consistency, if I see you really working at it, then I will come and save you. You will not find that kind of storyline. Because there's nothing about Israel that causes God to go save them. They're not some kind of worldwide powerhouse that God's thinking, i got to get them on my team. It's not like God's ki- you know, picking, picking a kickball team, and he's like, i got to have Israel on my team because they're fantastic. They're actually not. They're puny. They're nothing. I mean, their whole life they've been slaves. They're not, they're not trained for war. They're not... They don't know how to govern anything. They've always been under the authority of others. Why did God do this? Because God did it. Because God chose to set His love on them. Because God showed them grace. He saves them by His grace, and then He says, this is how you must live. Grace comes before law. Dear friends, we must get that through our thick hearts. To think that my performance this last week is one of the key determining factors to what God thinks of me today, whether He accepts me today 
whether my place in heaven is secure today. We need to get it through our hearts that we have to stop thinking that, that, that we obey God's law to get God's favor. That is impossible. And actually, we see grace comes before law in the, just all over the Bible, don't we? I mean, just think about Abraham, right? God calls Abraham. God makes these promises to him. Long before he says, you must circumcise your children, you must obey the law of circumcision. If you go to the New Testament and you read Ephesians, the first half of Ephesians talks about the glorious grace of God that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. There is exactly one command in all of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and it is this, remember. Remember that you were outsiders. Remember that you weren't part of this and God brought you in speaking to the Gentiles. And it's only on the basis of three chapters of God's glorious grace with nothing about us being taken into account that God then says through Paul in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy. Not to get the grace, but because the grace done been got. That's why we walk in a manner worthy. And in the second half of Ephesians, there are 38 specific imperatives. And when you include the participles that explain those imperatives, the implied commands stretch far beyond that. But not before grace. Not before grace. Grace comes before law. So the giver is God His grace comes before the law, but let us be clear. Thirdly, there must be obedience to the law. The the very form of the Ten Commandments calls for it. You shall, you shall not. God does not give His people guidelines. God does not give His people suggestions. God does not give His people hints or clues, or winks and nudges. God gives commands. God requires obedience. Israel must live a certain way. In James's words, they must show their faith by their works. And God goes on later to say that obedience will bring blessing and disobedience will bring curses. They won't be able to enjoy the land and its fruitfulness if they don't obey. In fact, when you go farther even forward, uh, uh, and, and, and Israel is defeated by their enemies, and they're taken out of the land, and they go into exile, you can draw a direct line back to the law because they would not obey God. They would not do it. Now, friends, we rightly say, as Jesus teaches in John chapter 9, that there are plenty of conditions in life that occur because this world is cursed by sin and not as a direct result of some particular sin. You know, uh, there's this man uh, born blind, and and the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? Who's, Who's to blame for this? 
But to only say that is not the full story because there are circumstances in which we suffer relationally, financially, even physically because of our sin. And it's very clear in the Old Testament. It's not always clear to us. But God says they are going to go into exile because they will not obey Him. Obedience is absolutely necessary. The fact that grace comes before the law doesn't mean that obedience is optional. The fact that we are saved by grace, that Jesus has set us free, doesn't mean that the Christian life is a free-for-all. Galatians 5 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We must obey. Not because we're under the law as a taskmaster, but we're also not free to ignore it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a few different kinds of law. Okay, right? There is civil law. Kind of deals with court cases, what happens in this case and that case. There is ceremonial law that lays out the things for worship and certain festivals. And then there is moral law. And moral law reflects the, the moral character of God, and it transcends, it goes beyond. The civil and ceremonial are for Old Testament Israel. This is why when your friend says, well, why do you eat shrimp? If you're a Christian and you believe that, uh, you know, it's usually because you may assert that uh, homosexuality is a sin, the Bible teaches this. Oh, yeah, well, the Bible also says that you shouldn't be eating shrimp. And that you should be doing this and doing that. And, oh, is that a shirt that's uh, half cotton, half polyester? Is that what that is? You're not supposed to have that either. Well, this is just a misunderstanding of what these laws are actually for. The ceremonial and the civil were meant for the nation of Israel to define them as a distinct national people among all the nations of the world. The moral law, is all, it all comes through again in the New Testament. It doesn't, you, don't, you don't have to wonder whether God is now apathetic toward murder or adultery or the truth or any of these other things. So we must obey. We must obey. But it bears repeating because some of us get very excited when we hear that we must obey. Uh, uh, because that's what we really think the world needs. The world needs more obedience in its life. Just more obedience, more obedience, more obedience. And some of us recoil from anything that sounds like you must obey because all our lives, some guy was standing up behind a podium like this and banging on it with one fist and screaming at the top of his lungs that you must obey. And, sudden, and somehow we got it into our, into our heads that if we don't obey, God is not going to love us. So we must say both. We must say that we must obey as believers. There's no doubt about that. But we also must be reminded over and over and over again, because we tend to think too much of ourselves and our own lives and our own obedience, we must be reminded over and over again that we do not obey to gain status with God. The law just doesn't have that kind of power. It shows us our sin. Romans 3 says, By the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes 
knowledge of sin. The law tells me what sin is, but it's not just information, it's experienced knowledge. So I hear what God requires, and I know that I have failed. So the law teaches me that I am a sinner, and, how to, and, and it teaches me by stirring up all manner of guilt and shame and conviction and condemnation. I am not this. The law shows me my sin, but the law can't provide a solution. It can't give me a right status with God. It can't improve my status with God. Dear friends, just get it right through our heads. You ready? Our status before God is settled once and for all in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't change the necessity of obedience, but it changes how we should think about obedience. Romans 8 says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, fulfilling the law is actually required, but the sad reality is we can't do it. We are too weak. The glorious reality is Jesus has done it for us. Jesus did what the law could not do, not because the law is flawed, but because we are flawed, because we are imperfect. The, the law is holy and good and just, and we are none of those things. So we can't even keep it. So Jesus' life fulfills the law by, through His perfect obedience. Jesus' death fulfills the law by taking the punishment that is deserved for disobedience. And when we trust in Him, we receive the benefits of His death, forgiven, no condemnation. And we receive the benefits of His life, righteous before God. That's what happens. That's what Jesus has done for us. What is the relationship of the law to salvation? Well, it shows me my sin, but then it points me to my Savior. By God's Word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned till my guilty soul, imploring, turned to Calvary Mercy there was great, and grace was free, and pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. At Calvary, you will not find liberty at Mount Sinai. You will only find liberty at Mount Calvary in what Jesus Christ has done. And when He saves us, He doesn't save us because we have obeyed. He saves us because Jesus has obeyed. But because Jesus has saved us, we obey. You see the difference? We don't obey to get in. We obey because we're in. We're in the family now. So we behave like the family's supposed to behave. We didn't have all those rules about 
uh, making our bed and putting our plate in the dishwasher and all that stuff before, but now we're in the family and we make the bed and we put the plate in the dishwasher and we do all of that. We weren't in the family. We were lost and living by our own law and God saved us through Jesus Christ and He said, this is what it means to be in the family. This is what it means to live. You have to live this way. You're already in. But you have to live this way. This is the way we live. Now someone raises a hand and says, now no, wait a second. J Jesus said all we have to do is love God and love others. Right. Absolutely. How do you do that? How do you love God? How do you love others? It's not about sitting in your room at night with your Bible clutched to your chest and just feeling all the warm and fuzzy inside. I just, I just love God. I just love all those people. No. How do, you, how do you love God? How do you love others? Actually, the Bible teaches us that in order to love God and in order to love others, we obey God's commands. That's how we do it. We see that in the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four commands are vertical. How do we demonstrate our love for God? Well, we have no other gods before Him. We don't make idols. We don't use His name in vain. We imitate Him in relation to the Sabbath. How do we show love for others? <laughs> well, you don't kill them. You don't lie to them. You don't steal from them. You don't covet. You honor your parents, these kinds of things. In fact, even if you think, well, that's just, you're just saying that. Well, actually, the New Testament is much more explicit than I am. 1 John chapter 5 says, this is the love of God. Don't you want to hear what comes after that? What does it mean to love God, John? That we keep His commandments. Romans 13, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling, is the fulfilling of the law. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? You obey God's commands. How do, you obey, how do you love God? How do you express love for God? You obey God's commands. In fact, John goes on to say, this is not burdensome. I'm not trying to lay some kind of weight on you. This is the way to freedom. This is the way to actually live out your faith. Now, certainly we can't do this in our own strength. We need the Spirit's help. We need to pray. We need to depend on Him. We need to be taught what it means to do these things in a variety of circumstances of life. But the basic posture of the Christian is obedience. It is to tremble before God in humility at His Word. In fact, God says in Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my Word. And here we are in Exodus 20 at this crucial point in the storyline of the Bible, and God gives the law. He gives it as creator with the authority over His creation. He gives it as the awesome God who, whose awesome power deserves obedience and deserves reverence. And He does it as their God. God doesn't command us outside of our relationship with Jesus. 
He commands us because he's brought us in. In, we're in. But before giving the law, God gives grace, saves them from slavery, and it's on the basis of that salvation, that grace that they must obey. They are his people, and God's word, God's law, calls them to live as his people. Now, dear friend, if we know the grace of God in Jesus, if Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, then we must follow him. And what does following Jesus mean? I just want to be like Jesus. I just want to be like Jesus. Well, what was Jesus like? He was obedient. He was obedient to God. He was obedient at every turn. He was obedient in a way we can't be obedient, but He was obedient. And we, by the power of the Spirit, can obey God. The question is, do you love God? Do you love others? Don't examine your affections primarily to answer that question. Examine your life. Are you committed to obedience? Because if we're God's people, we must live as God's people. That's actually the point here. God gives His law so His people will live as His people. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that You are a speaking God, that You have shown us grace, that You, the great and awesome Creator of all things, the ruler of the universe, that You have condescended to give Yourself to us, to commit Yourself to us, to show us grace, to save us. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to think rightly about Your law, that even as all who wrote about it, wrote of it as good and holy and just, that they love Your law. Help us to love it in the right way. Give us grace so that we don't cling to it as a means of earning favor, which it can never be. But give us grace to obey it as an expression of our love for You and our love for others. We ask, God, that You would in that way make us like our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the praise team is going to come up and we're going to sing together the hymn that I referenced.